Toward the end of December, they were back where they'd parted from Stevenson's party, and about to work back onto the ice of Marguerite Bay. The sea ice showed the scars left by high temperatures and strong winds, tide cracks and pressure ridges more prominent than in their last passing. On the final day of 1936, they crossed to terra firma, finding the depot safe, but their path to it made difficult by open water in the bay at the southern end of the islands. They got ashore and made camp, deciding to restrict sea ice travel to the night, when lower temperatures might make the surface less slushy and easier to cross. After getting the dogs settled, the two men climbed the island's modest heights to map the best possible path north. Rymill and Bingham drove their teams to the island's shoreline on the evening of New Year's Day, but the low tide made the ice foot a doozy, and the arrival of five Adelie penguins sent Bingham's dogs off the desired path. The sledge ended up in the water, Bingham's like a camera, taking a salty swim as he and Rymel worked to retrieve their payload and the dogs made short work of the birds. Open leads and thawpans made progress toward Red Rock Ridge a matter of hopscotch and backtracking. Beyond Red Rock Ridge, the sea ice looked unsafe, so they worked the sledges up a glacier to circumvent the worst of the coastal route, adding a lot of time and hassle, but avoiding anyone drifting out to sea at the final hurdle. The last five and a half hours the teams worked through ankle-deep slush, cutting it fine in their return to the Debenhams, but making it without further losses of dogs or equipment. Another two and a half months in the field, in this case accounting 535 nautical miles. Life continued according to winter quarters routine in their absence. A short sledging foray to study in a daily colony and to geologise on Locatelli Island, and egg-thieving forays to the Adelie colony at Red Rock Ridge, comprised the limited departures from the Debenhams. Hampton aborted the proposed flying program when the melt pools on the landing field slowed the Foxmoth down too much to take off safely, resigning the final survey flights to the limited range and cruising speed imposed by the float gear once the sea ice opened up enough to allow water operations. Word that the Panola departed the Falklands on the 28th of December prompted the first moves to pack up camp. A mid-January wade across the increasingly inundated sea ice to Millerand Island allowed Fleming an opportunity to climb high enough to make useful observations of the sea ice beyond Adelaide Island. Milk pools and fraying margins indicated against anyone leaving the Debenhams until the Panola arrived, other than if Hampton got a shot at making the final flights on floats. The first of these flights saw Hampton and Rymill overflying Adelaide Island on the 1st of February, adding hinterland detail to a map that previously comprised a coastline and a series of peaks. The float-equipped Foxmoth feeling sluggish under the combined deficits of its floats and its decreasingly powerful engine. The next flight carried Hampton and Rymill north on the 12th of February to make observations of the sea ice in order to report to Ryder aboard the Panola expected to lie up in its former anchorage in the Argentine Islands at that point. The ice looked good for an approach to the Debenhams, so long as the Panola stayed clear of the ice congestion in the centre of Marguerite Bay. Mickle John sent the good oil over the airwaves, and Duncan Cass, who taught himself to operate the wireless through the winter months, received it. The Panola should make its way to the Leone Islands, 
where Riley would meet them in the Stella Polaris, with copies of the freshly drawn charts for further navigation south. The anti-penultimate Foxboth flight of the season saw Hampton and Stevenson take off after three hours of faffing about on the water. The aircraft's engine was only producing about four-fifths of its rated revolutions per minute, and couldn't provide enough oomph to get the operation airborne in the mile-long stretch of open water available close to the Debenhams. Riley towed the Foxmoth out to sea in the Stella Polaris, Stevenson standing on one of the floats to fend off ice, until, eight miles from winter quarters, a longer reach of open water allowed a successful takeoff run on the second attempt. Heading north and flying into unsledged inlets and fjords, the flight confirmed that Graham Land comprised an unbroken single landmass between 64 and 72 degrees south. The peninsula might yet prove a separate entity to the continental landmass of Antarctica, but all previously claimed disjuncts were demonstrated as invalid. Riley, Bertram and Moore took the Stella Polaris on its 80-mile transit up to the Lenoir Islands, starting out on the 14th of February. Riley stopped in at an anchorage on Horseshoe Island, previously sighted but not sounded, due to sea ice, to see if it would suit the Panola as a nearer holding point at which to await clear conditions to approach the Debenhams. Seven fathoms in the lagoon and three across the entrance saw Horseshoe Island receive the tick of approval, and the party carried on the additional 50 nautical miles to the Leones, where the trio set up camp to await their colleagues coming south from the Argentine Islands. An unusual bird sighted during this foray constituted the first record of a Pomatorian skewer, an arctic species, in Antarctica. Though Robert's inability to hit it with the 303 in the failing evening light made the identification provisional. On the 23rd, the Leone Island party sighted the Panola's mast on the horizon and headed out in the Stella Polaris, meeting the mock turtle coming the other way. The small boat crews swapped some news and the new charts went out to Captain Ryder. The Stella Polaris returned to the Leones to break camp before following the Panola to the newly plumbed shelter of the harbour at Horseshoe Island. Captain Ryder found the entrance to that harbour blocked by ice and so carried on to the Debenhams, arriving in the vicinity after dark and anchoring offshore using Stevenson's chart to identify the best ground. Forced to circumvent ice, the Panola passed near an active glacier terminus and at exactly the worst moment departed from the narrow charted channel under the influence of an unexpected current and went aground on a rock. Attempts at warping off achieved nothing and the crew endured a tense wait for the tide to float them free, the glacier obligingly failing to drop hundreds of tons of ice on the tiny ship. The Panola finally came onto the mooring on the 24th the same day Hampton carried out two final gap-filling survey flights, completing a flying program running to 110 hours in the air, and many more than that in the hangar repairing and fabricating parts to keep the propeller turning. He began dismantling the airframe and packing his tools. A hundred-knot gale blew through after three days of loading and watering the Panola, and while the ship stood firm in its nest of warps and lines, the Stella Polaris sank at the mooring requiring two days of plank work and a complete strip-down and clean of the engine. The wind kept up for a week, slowing loading to a crawl, but clear weather four days straight saw the Panola ready to sail on the 11th of March. 
Captain Ryder gave the crew a final sound night asleep in the harbour and sailed on the morning of the 12th, setting a course to the southwest to investigate the ice margin, the Panola being the first ship to ply the Bellingshausen Sea in March since the Belgica. Satisfied that ships couldn't reach Charco Island even that late in the season, the Panola turned for South Georgia on the 14th, reaching Gritviken on the 2nd of April after an uneventful crossing. Mrs. Salverson sprung the shore party passage to England aboard the tanker Coronda, and the Panola made its way north under sail. The British Grahamland expedition cost just under £20,000 and returned far more geographic information than many larger, better-funded ventures. Rymel's team set sail with only two professional mariners among their number and among a welter of prophecies of doom from maritime circles, but demonstrated that dedicated amateurs are up to the challenges of the Southern Ocean if trained in by willing and conscientious mentors. The Panola sailed 16,000 nautical miles, 11,000 of those entirely under sail. The coordinated use of aerial survey and ground control allowed the accurate mapping and charting of more ground per unit of person time spent ashore than any previous expedition, and the idea that Graham Land comprised an archipelago of islands was all but put to bed by Rymill and Co.'s efforts. Rymill's account of the expedition, first published in 1938, is a classic of polar literature, featuring chapters and essays by those members of the BGLE best able to recount particular episodes or aspects of their work. The book features a foreword by then-president of the RGS, Sir George Bishop, and an introductory chapter by Sir Hugh Robert Mill, giving a historical chronology of discovery around Graham Land. It's interesting to read the perspective of someone who held such influence over expedition preparations and their post-hoc representations as he entered his dotage, and while Palmer is mentioned more as a sidekick to Powell than as a competent sealer in his own right, Mill's account of early exploration in Antarctica reads as surprisingly magnanimous, for the time, toward the efforts of nations other than Britain. In spite of his obvious talent for organising and carrying out an ambitious and successful field program, John Rymill never ventured into polar regions again. He married Dr Eleanor Francis, librarian at the Cambridge University Geography Department, and they started a family on Panola Station in South Australia. Fleming's career focused on ecclesiastical matters in the Anglican Church, becoming the youngest ever arbitrarily ranked reader of made-up stuff in 1949, and eventually serving as Her Majesty's domestic advisor on ancient fairy tales. He wrote up the geological papers arising from the BGLE and held the directorship of the Scott Polar Research Institute, a part-time gig after Frank Debenham retired in 1949. Hampton served in the RAF Reserve during the Second World War and ran the Department of Civil Aviation, strategising the use of Britain's entirety of civilian airframes seconded for government use for the duration. He returned to flying through the BOAC night flights in and out of Stockholm in war profit I mean neutral Sweden to secure supplies of ball bearings and other strategically important raw materials and precision manufactured goods. Lofty Martin and Red Ryder served together aboard a Q-ship during the war. The ship was torpedoed. Martin died, recorded as lost at sea, but Ryder spent four days afloat on some wreckage before rescue arrived. 
He then captained a cross-channel ferry, which sank when rammed in the Firth of Clyde during fog. In 1942, he helped conceive and lead Operation Chariot, a late-march raid on port facilities at Saint-Nazaire that successfully limited the giant German battleship Tirpitz to operating from the Norwegian fjords. The raid's success came at the cost of very heavy losses for British forces, and five Victoria Crosses, the highest British military award for valour in battle and the only medal available to all ranks, were awarded for actions that day, Robert Riders being one of the three not awarded posthumously. His role in this successful raid saw Riders' expertise consulted in the development and execution of the unsuccessful raid on Dieppe, Operation Jubilee, in August 1942, the lessons from Jubilee becoming the handbook of what not to do in preparations for subsequent amphibious assaults. Lyle Ryder was part of the British Expeditionary Force tasked with fighting rearguard action to afford the evacuations at Dunkirk maximum time to get the British Army out of France. As a major in the Royal Norfolk Regiment, Lyle Ryder led his men in the fight until ammunition ran out. Taken prisoner by German troops, Ryder and 96 other men were taken to a barn and shot in an incident known as the La Paradis Massacre. Signals officers are a shady shower at the best of times, so what little I can find out about Lieutenant Micklejohn, I don't know that I trust, but he signalled throughout the Second World War in the Middle East, and after the war in Singapore, no doubt every bit as competently as he did for the BGLE. Someone noted him as sharp-witted, kind and conscientious, but short of getting my hands on personal journals from the expedition, he remains one of the least well-mapped individuals, which fits perfectly with my overall picture of signals officers. Henry Millet served as engineer in light carriers throughout the Second World War. Riley went into the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve a year after returning from Antarctica and served in various commando operations early in the war before teaching in the Winter Warfare School in Iceland. He served as an advisor during the filming of Scott of the Antarctic, but didn't return to polar climbs. Roberts worked up the ornithological papers arising from the BGLE, receiving his doctorate for his thesis, The Biology of Some Antarctic Birds. The war saw him offered a commission in the Royal Navy, but poor eyesight nixed the appointment. Instead, he worked with Bertram to publish The Polar Operations Manuals. Moore moved to Africa with his wife and served in the South African Corps of Engineers in Abyssinia, now Ethiopia and with the 8th Army during the battle for El Alamein during the war. Bertram wrote Arctic and Antarctic, the technique of polar travel, which became the standard text for subsequent British efforts at high latitudes for several decades. Immediately prior to the Second World War, he advised the War Office on clothing for Arctic operations, publishing The Handbook on Clothing and Equipment Required in Cold Climates with Roberts and his input developed the mass-produced string vest, a Norwegian-invented garment geared to trap pockets of warming air against a body using the minimum of fabric. In 1947, he took on the part-time directorship of the Scott Polar Research Institute and held the position for seven years. On his resignation from the role, he ensured his successor would hold the job as a full-time position. 
the Institute steadily demanding more time and attention as it grew in the post-World War II polar boom. But for his enthusiasm for and treatises on eugenics, he would stand as a much-admired hero of polar biology. Bertram returned to Antarctica once in company with Alfred Stevenson as a guest of the British Antarctic Survey aboard the RS John Biscoe. I'll leave Bingham, Cass and Roberts out of the epilogue, as they have yet to end their contributions to the ice coffee narrative, other than to mention that all members of the British Graham Land Expedition received the Polar Medal for their efforts. Before closing out on the BGLE, I need to amend some stuff I said in episode 93. In that episode I recounted Sir Hubert Wilkins' disappointment at the state of the abandoned whaling station at Deception Island, and is blaming it on BGLE members who staged there with their dogs. I also stated that John Rymill blemished his record in my eyes by failing to respond to correspondence from Sir Hubert on that matter. John Rymill's son, Peter Rymill, and granddaughter, Sam Hickson, corresponded with me on the matter, and I received extensive evidence demonstrating that John Rymill took the matter seriously and investigated as thoroughly as he could. The tranche of material Peter sent me included a report from Hampton to Rymill indicating the vandalism Wilkins cited was caused by the crew of the Discovery 2. Hampton acknowledged that he did leave a slops bucket in the accommodation block in a rushed departure, geared to avoid delaying the ship that was kind enough to collect them, and that a dead dog left beneath an overturned wheelbarrow was one of his animals, but that the damage Wilkins reported to the Hectoria Whaling Company was caused by merchant sailors given time ashore and acting badly once out of their commander's jurisdiction. This shifts the problem off BGLE shoulders, but doesn't alter that the problem was problematic, and it's a dog act that Discovery 2 personnel treated the structures and resources with so little regard, both in terms of the rights of the owners and of possible utility to future sailors in need. I also reported John Rymill as taking pleasure in reporting Wilkins' alleged straits as not existing off the back of the upbraiding he received from Wilkins, but my subsequent reading of Southern Lights didn't turn up any such schadenfreudal skiting. I went off on a rant about people denigrating others' efforts in the South off the back of that sequence, and while that's no longer pertinent regarding Rymill and Wilkins, it remains an ongoing theme among past and present-day Antarcticans, and a form of sorority elitism I hold little patience with. The documentation Peter Rymel shared with me also demonstrated the BGLE received permission to use the resources left at Deception Island, so I've got no reason to hold any beef with John Rymel, and I eat my words running him down on all counts. John Rymel's descendants aren't the first people to take issue with my representation of their relative in this series, but they are the first to bring compelling evidence to the table that my representation was inaccurate and I applaud them their patience and diligence in our correspondence. The correspondence also yielded an insight pertinent to coming episodes about the voyage of the Schwabenland, in that the speech broadcast from Europe that transfixed Stevenson while tending to the radio set and awaiting the Buenos Aires time signal was one given by Adolf Hitler. Peter Rymil's research into his father's life shows up how shallow my own efforts are. I can't afford the time and resources to make this series more than it is, but it's not for want of inspiration that I'm not packing my bags and heading to the Scott Polar Research Institute, or the Ohio University Bird Collection, 
or equivalent repositories of first-hand accounts and original documents. I've left my errors in place in episode 93, partly because I don't keep my raw recordings or my editing files, and partly because I'd rather own my mistakes and hang a lantern on them than try to pretend they never happened. I'm sometimes stupid and often incorrect. For the edification of my children, I try to role model taking the repercussions of those factors in my life seriously, and retractions and apologies are better than a dirty delete. I'm looking at you, Steve. I hope my respect for John Rymill shines through in the three episodes I've dedicated to the BGLE. Peter and Sam's efforts to correct my factual understanding of, and opinions about, John Rymill's response to a complaint regarding his men, allayed my previous reservation about the third significant South Australian to lead an Antarctic expedition. Where you couldn't pay me enough to ship with Bird, and I'd need some significant remuneration in cash-up front form to sail under Campbell, I would sign on under Rymill as a volunteer and follow his lead come hell or high water. His contributions to Australia's war effort are slated to receive some attention in an episode assessing the impacts of the Second World War on Antarctic exploration and the lives of Antarcticans. Sticking with this theme of antecedents and descendants, here's a two-part interview with my son, who sailed with me aboard the Ocean Adventurer last Austral summer. We recorded these pieces about two months before and two months after his Antarctic experience. Antarctic voyage. He's going to be joining me aboard the Ocean Adventurer in December 2019, flying straight to King George Island. So he's going to miss the Drake Passage and all of the potential seasick that comes with that. You, do you know if you get seasick? Yes. Um, not badly, but I do get seasick. Yep. And you've been sailing a fair bit in small boats. This will be your first time on a, a large ship and actually sleeping yes. on sleeping at sea, so it's going to be interesting to see how you fare with that, because I know that I'm pretty rotten at it. What are the things that you're looking forward to most about this trip? Um, snow and penguins, I think. Snow and penguins? Yes. That's, that's pretty high on a lot of people's lists, and I think we'll be able to provide that for you. Any particular species among the penguins catch your imagination? Um, rock hoppers, they're my favourite. Will we see those? Possibly. There's there's one example of uh, a very close relative of the rock hoppers, rock rock hoppers that lives over here on um, Half Moon Island, and he's called Kevin. He's really obviously different to all the chin straps at the colony. He's got the big feathers coming off the side because he is a. <sighs> I wish I could remember, but yeah, he's he's a very close relative of, of the rock hoppers. We're likely to see Gentoo penguins down here at Cuberville Island. I like those. And may get some Adelies if we get far enough south to this end of Anders Island. But we've only got a week to play with. That's part of the advantage of flying to King George Island and joining your ship there after the two-day crossing of the Drake Passage is already out of the way, is that you can get to a lot of really interesting places along the coast of the Antarctic Peninsula in a really condensed period. So I think the penguins won't be a problem at that time of year. I think we'll be 
moving into the part of the season when the whales are really numerous too. Awesome. Have you seen whales? Yeah. Which species have you have you already clocked? Uh, humpback and belugas. That's pretty cool. I think we're likely to see a lot of humpback. I think some fin whales and some say whales would be awesome. I haven't seen a blue whale yet, so if we get down there and you get to see a blue whale and I don't, uh, <laughs> I'll probably be very happy for you and grit my teeth and not be at all resentful. Uh, other birds, the flying birds, what, what catches your, your attention there? Um, albatross? They're not a thing in Antarctica, are they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Oh. Well, I guess albatross. You're more likely to see them in the open stretches of water than around the, around the coast itself. But there's still, you know, there's still some sizable crossings here, so albatross are a possibility. Uh, giant southern petrels or stinkers. <laughs> uh, you'll know if we see them. I love them. They're hilarious. Um, terns and kelp gulls and blue-eyed shags will probably be part of our trip. Seals. Oh, yeah. What do you know about the seals? Um, there's a lot of them. <laughs> this is true. I like elephant seals the most. Ah. Uh, they just look silly. They do look silly. Four, four tons of silly, but very <laughs> silly. We may see elephant seals. They're not as common around the peninsula as they are further north in South Georgia. But, yeah, I have, I've seen them in some of these areas. The other seals that we're likely to see are Waddell's. And crab eaters, they're almost a given at that time of year in these waters. I'm hoping that we get to see leopard seals because you know, you know. Didn't how... you take a photo of one of those, like I, up close? I did. Yeah, it was looking for me. <laughs> I was I was standing on the bow of my boat and it was keeping an eye out for where that monkey went. So it was a bit of a sneaky shot. But yeah, you know that I'm fascinated and terrified of them in <laughs> equal measures. I think, but they are very very cool. What else do I want you to experience down here? I think some some blue sky days and some really heavy blizzards, I think, are important factors. The blue skies, you get the contrast of the landscape against the sky and the clouds. Blizzards, you get to see the ferocity of this place and gives you a feeling of why people have such a hard time existing this far south. I remember in that same photo, um, the water was like as clear as a swimming pool. That was amazing. That's right. The plankton doesn't really start ramping up until December. So the water's really clear up until then. And then after December, it starts to get milky. The plankton is really, really dense. And that's how so many filter feeders are able to, to get by just eating, eating plankton. But up until that plankton bloom really kicks off, the water is a gorgeous, incredible clarity. Trying to think if you've met any of my colleagues from the boat. Says Katya, came and stayed with us from Russia. Oh yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, I've met met plenty of guests who sailed with me, but only the one one colleague. That's part of what I'm really looking forward to on this trip is introducing you to the people that I work with in this context. I'm I'm really proud to be part of that team, and I think there are some wonderful people that. I'm excited for you to meet on their own merits, but also excited for you to see these people as 
inspiration and potential mentors in your life that they will show you what other people get up to because you you pretty much taken all of your cues so far from your mother and I. There's an incredible diversity of backgrounds and ambitions among these people, and I think they're really cool. Deception Island will be your first visit to an active volcano. How are you feeling about that? Um, well, I mean, how often does it go off? Last time was 1969 that it gave serious trouble, and that's when they had to evacuate what was left of the stations. All right, I don't feel too bad then. Too bad. (laughs) You do see steam coming off the beach, and occasionally the water in the harbour gets very hot. At one point, I think it was in the 1930s, it got hot enough for the paint to start stripping off the off the ships that were in port at the time. So, so where on the island is it? That whole circle of island, that whole horseshoe shape, is the caldera. The ship sails through that narrow entrance there, that's called Neptune's Bellows. That's a spectacular transit. It's really incredible to go through that through that entrance and then you're in the calm waters inside the caldera so it's a lot shallower than surrounding waters and can potentially explode but you've got the old whaling station there the hectoria whaling station which has got a lot of um, stuff that got left behind that's interesting to to have a look at and the old hangar from the british antarctic surveys days running their aircraft out of there we may also get to another former airport down here on Damoy Point. So the aircraft would stage from Deception Island to Damoy and onto Rothera Station. But then they started using larger aircraft and they didn't need that kangaroo hop. So now they can do it all in one hit. So that's now a defunct airport. But the hut's been preserved. That's the one where someone mistook me for a resident when I was wearing my beard and my, my blue jumper. I really hope we get to visit the post office at Port Lockroy. That's another British Antarctic survey station that's now a museum. And that's incredible to visit just to see how people were living in Antarctica a couple of decades ago. And also just to, to visit the shop and send a postcard home from Antarctica. That's, that's, that's a fairly unusual experience and people really appreciate seeing seeing a postcard with that franking on it i might take some altona postcards just so they don't get too excited <laughs> so that postcard from antarctica oh, it's a picture of altona thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about this i'm looking forward to having you on the trip and then we'll sit down after it when you've had time to process your experience and we'll see see what you have to say about it then okay Thanks, Dad. Thank you. Four months after he returned home from his trip to Antarctica. So this is the, the retrospective. What did you think? W- wonderful. The best experience of my life. Yeah? By far. Wow. That's a big deal. What are the standout moments for you? Got to be the orca sighting, the two orca sightings, and... The thousands of chin, chin straps. The chin strap colony that we visited at Deception Island at Bailey Head. Yeah. That was, that was pretty cool. And I was actually hoping that your voice would break while we were 
at sea and you you would have left Australia with this boy voice <laughs> and come back with the manly voice. It sounds like it's in the process now. Just We've just listened to the, the pre-record and I think your voice is deeper. Do you think Antarctica made you a man? No. <laughs> uh, ship life, how did that strike you? Um, it, it, it was not really all that much different from like solid land. It, it would rock every once in a while, but it was quite stable. And your day-to-day activities on ship, hanging out with Brian, can you talk listeners through that? Uh, mainly we'd just sit in the cabin if we weren't out in Antarctica, but we often went up to the bar. Um, I think we played a few games and listened to some of the music on the guitar. And we spent a lot of time out on the decks as well. The birds that you were expecting, the flying birds that you were expecting to see, did you, did you clock most of your anticipated list with the albatross and the, the giant southern petrels and the terns? I don't think we saw any albatross, but we definitely saw the terns. Do you have any particular experiences of the, the field guides that you want to share? Um, I, I loved going out with... At that time when we went out with... Um, and on, on the boat with Brian and the hydrometer... Oh, that was Marla. Marla. We were out with the hydrophone. Hydrophone, that's it. Yep. Even if we didn't hear anything, it was still quite fun. Well, it was interesting, Brian pointed out, that among the things we didn't hear were the snapping shrimp that are such a feature of snorkelling and diving in temperate waters. You hear so many little clicking sounds underwater in the shallows from the, the crustacean snapping shrimp that just, it's a complete absence in Antarctic waters. But um, Manda, you were in her zodiac when you had that very close encounter with the minke whales and yeah. the humpback whales. But those were wonderful. How close did they actually come? Uh, quite close. I think 20 metres, maybe. I'm not very good with metres. <laughs> I think Manda's very good with whales. I think she's got some knack that I lack. What's the single most important impression or lesson that you learnt from the voyage? Oh, uh... I, I didn't... Ice is cold? <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't really, like, learn any lessons, but I um, definitely learnt things. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm, I'm... I'm not saying that you actually sat down and took a course, but... <laughs> What's what's the what's the biggest insight or new perspective that you've gained through your travels? Um, don't know. Don't know. Well, think about it and come back to me later. Because I can edit this down. <laughs> it's nice that you think about the question, though. Some people just talk for the sake of talking. I don't mind dead air 
and quiet bits and again I can edit them down but just when someone takes the time to think about a question it really it really gets me I love it seal encounters talk about the seals that you saw so so we saw the crab eater seal first right the, there was a crab eater seal with a big big old gash in its side. And then the leopard seal came up directly next to the boat. The zodiac, that is. Um, and then we saw a bunch, uh, a whole bunch of seals on Elephant Island. The elephant seals, of course. Hundreds of them. And... A couple fur seals on that island as well. And were the elephant seals as exciting and entertaining <laughs> as you anticipated? Definitely. I don't think I'll ever get tired of watching them. Never. But very odd creatures. <laughs> I think they got... Uh, it's anthropomorphizing, but I'd call it charisma. <laughs> Even just watching them sleep and fart and breathe it just I don't know there's something about them that is incredibly compelling any favourite photographs from the the library that you generated while you were travelling with us definitely have to be that photo of the orca um the little calf and the two large orcas you mind if I share that with listeners? Yeah, I mean, go for it. Thanks. Would you go again? Definitely. As many times as I possibly could. <laughs> That's great to hear. That makes me so happy. I'm so grateful that you embraced the opportunities that were available to you as much as you did. And... I received so many compliments from my colleagues and from the guests on the ship about my very polite and very intelligent and very engaged young man. I was really proud. That's nice. So thank you for coming with me and thank you for being awesome. Thanks for uh, uh, getting me to come. (laughs) Now, in housekeeping and updates... I'm enjoying getting to know John Cooper as we work through the small hours together in cold and damp conditions, and I'm grateful to Matt Koopman for putting me in the path of Ross and Simon, whose project is offering me my first opportunity to contribute meaningfully to Australian marine research in several years. Jackie Kerrin, one of the most inspiring people in my circle, landed some funding to get a podcast capturing the talent and content on show in Hobson's Bay storytelling events up and running and I'm on board to teach audio editing to the production team. I'll let you know when we launch it, and hope any listeners with an interest in oral storytelling as a skill set give it a listen. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to the coffers through the Patreon page or the PayPal option. I've yet to work out how to actually get Patreon working to my financial advantage, but all contributions have buoyed my spirits through lean and worrying times. PayPal contributions are keeping me in books sufficient to ensure coming episodes don't rely entirely on the Reader's Digest Book of Antarctica, fine tome that it is, and articles from the Port Chalmers Fisherman's Biennial. 
a fictional periodical Paul Bruin invented as a stand-in representation for any predatory or poorly peer-reviewed journal a person might cite from or seek publication in, and which still gives me a giggle and receives regular use in my discussions about research in all contexts. Finally, some sleeper fan mail. If Greg Egan ever hears this, I'd like him to know that I've read and enjoyed his books and short stories to a rare degree. His work inspired insights and ideas in me that few other authors have matched, and stands as an example of the best that science fiction writing can aspire to. I recently reread Permutation City, and while the thrill of taking in what the work offers for the first time isn't available to me on secondary and tertiary readings, I still get a buzz from it. Rare fodder for the brain, that canon. I've been reading Robin Kappa's blog posts recounting his experiences on an expedition voyage to the Antarctic Peninsula, and while I didn't travel in his company, I think he gives a good account of what the average voyage of that nature takes in and offers. Peppered with wonderful photographs and nods to the unusual musical levers that propel his travels, rcd.typepad.com forward slash personal makes for some good reading. Take care and appreciate your coffee.